My message this morning is entitled, Forgiveness in an Experiential Sense. Before we begin that, we'll just say that as you probably noticed as we gave the introduction to that message, I'm a little bit hoarse. Uh, it's usually at least one Sunday a year that I have some sinus issues that cause eventually some throat issues, and those throat issues give me a nice voice to sing bass, but not so much a nice voice to talk for an hour. So we'll try to, to be very, very cautious of that or conscious of that rather and not get loud and, and take away what ability that we have to talk to you today by losing our voice. So if you would, just say a little prayer that the Lord blesses it to hold out as we share our thoughts with you today. As we said, our message is entitled Forgiveness in an Experiential Sense. This word experiential, to define it for you up front, means relating to our experience. And we often use this word to describe biblical realities in our daily lives, related to our daily lives, as opposed to biblical truths that pertain to our eternal deliverance from the penalty of sin. Now, there are other words that could be synonyms of this word experiential. Obviously, when we say experiential, we apply that definition. We want to talk today about forgiveness as it relates to our daily lives. But synonyms for this word experiential could be practical or daily. You might refer to this as forgiveness in a practical sense, forgiveness in a daily sense as it relates to our daily walk with Christ. But in older writings, the primary word that was used by preachers and pastors and theologians that you can still find is the word experimental. And that word experimental, though you don't find experiential, you say, where can I find this concept in older writings? Well, you don't find the word experiential as much because it isn't the word that they chose to use. But you do find many times the word experimental as it relates to our daily lives and our experience, our walk with Christ. And so we share with you today some very practical thoughts that will have to do with the word forgiveness as it relates to our daily lives, not necessarily our eternal forgiveness of sin, though every blessing that we have in Christ is built upon our eternal forgiveness of sin. So when we're talking today about forgiveness in an experimental or experiential or practical sense, while this is something that relates to our daily lives, as we'll see from a passage in 1 John, even the blessings we have in our daily lives still held back to and are a result of the forgiveness that we have through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while we make a distinction here, we also should not divide it in such a way as to make it disconnected from our eternal forgiveness of sin, every blessing that we have even here in our lives in Christ in a spiritual sense is built upon the forgiveness of sin that we talked about last week being unconditionally and eternally, finally, forever forgiven of all of our sins. Not only is our sin nature taken away, but He has taken away our sins. We are completely whole in Christ, as God the Father looks at us, as we learned last week, He doesn't see the sins of this week or next week, this morning or last night. He doesn't see your sin nature in Adam, but He sees His Son Jesus. 
Now, one of the things that will be clear to clarify about today, because of that fact, we have to approach these passages that we look at today with a different understanding than we would if we did not understand that. So what we talked about last week necessitates our understanding of these passages that we want to consider today. As we talked last week about forgiveness in an eternal sense, God forgave his people because of the death of Christ. And there's a word that I want to give you. Christ's work in salvation is efficacious. And that means that it is completely effective. Christ's work in forgiveness, in dying for our sins and taking away our sins, is not a partial work. It isn't an attempt at a work. But Christ's redemptive work on our behalf is completely and totally efficacious. Remember the dying cry of the Lord Jesus Christ. What were those words in English? It is finished. That comes from a single Greek word that means finished. And it found usage even in arenas such as payment, and the root of that is even the Greek word in modern Greek for the word perfect or completed. And so the work of Christ is completely, totally, wonderfully efficacious in the taking away of sin from God's people. Today, as you gather from the title and our brief introduction of that, we want to speak on another aspect of forgiveness, or perhaps you might say another framework of forgiveness, forgiveness in an experiential sense. We begin today with an assertion that we want to spend some time proving and then applying, and then lastly, we want to give you a great example of Scripture, from Scripture of this concept. While God's people are forgiven in an eternal sense, the word forgive or forgiven also applies to many passages, in many passages, to our daily lives. And so we say that we are forgiven for our sins. God has forgiven us of our sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also end every single prayer with what? Forgive us for our sins. Now, if I'm forgiven from my sins, or for my sins, through Christ, why do I continue to pray, Lord, forgive me for my sins? If God has forgiven me, wouldn't you think that I simply am done with that and there's no other application of that in my life? I don't have to pray that prayer over and over. And yet, even in the model prayer, as we'll consider momentarily, when Jesus teaches his children to pray, the last thing that they are to pray is, forgive us our debts as we forgive those that have trespassed against us, as it were. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And so there are many passages that we read that the word forgiveness is used in with relation to those who are already forgiven. How do we understand this passage, or these passages, this concept, without contradiction. Now, God's Word has no contradiction in it. If you read what appears to be a contradiction, the contradiction is always in our understanding, 
And we go back to a principle that we find in Paul's writings to Timothy that the Word of God, though it never contradicts itself, it must be rightly divided. When Paul told Timothy to rightly divide the Word of truth, he wasn't telling him to divide truth from error from the Word of God because there's no error in the Word of God. But that phrase, rightly divide, was a tent maker's term. Paul, by trade, was a tent maker. To make tents, you had to cut the fabric according to the pattern, and you would sew all of the different pieces of fabric together according to the pattern and produce, create a tent that was able to be occupied. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been outside in a rainstorm in a tent, but you learn very quickly if the tent that you have was a quality product or a less than quality product in a rainstorm. As a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout, we would often go camping, and there were times that it would rain on us, and when it rained on us, if we were in a tent that was advertised waterproof but it wasn't produced or created correctly, we'd learn very quickly as the tent began to fill with water and our sleeping bags were wet in the middle of the night, that that tent was subpar. When Paul says to rightly divide the word of truth, he talks about the word as if it is fabric that we take, we cut, and we assemble in such a way as to make the tent its proper form and shape. The word of God is categories and subjects and various contexts, various people that are addressed And to understand what Scripture is talking about, we have to understand all of that. We have to apply it correctly. We have to rightly divide the word of truth. As we think about forgiveness in an experimental or experiential sense, to clarify how that applies to us, I have a couple of points along those lines that I want to give you. Number one, we ask for forgiveness... And God's chastening of us as sons or daughters is less than it would be in intensity had we remained proud and obstinate and unrepentant. And so if you sin, any sin, pick your poison, and you think there's nothing wrong with it, and you think, I am fine, I'm not afraid of what the Lord is going to do to me, I enjoy it, I'm going to do it. I don't care. And you're a child of God. Let me just tell you that the Lord is going to whip your tail for that. Where do you get that from? Hebrews chapter 12. The word of God speaks unto us as unto children, this exhortation, Hebrews 12, 5. And this is quoting a couple of Old Testament passages. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Listen, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. When a child of God sins, God as a good father will discipline his child. He chastens every single son whom he receiveth. From that, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all, that is, all sons are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. That's not a cuss word. It's a legal term. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. That is to say, you learn to respect your father when he chastens you. 
Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby." Now, this last verse is tied directly to that. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest he that is turned out of the way, he that is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. And what that statement means, to lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, if a person is being chastened for their sin then our responsibility is to encourage them and strengthen them. And so when you are chastened of God and you're afflicted and you recognize that that's divine chastening in your life, the reaction to that is to be to lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. We lift one another up. We encourage them. We draw up beside them and help lift them and carry them through this life. That's what the word fellowship implies. And so as we think about forgiveness being in an experiential or an experimental sense, number one, what we mean by that is that when we ask God as his sons to forgive us, then God does not chasten us as severely as he would chasten us if we are proud and obstinate and continuing in the sin that disappoints him and displeases him. Now let me give you a word of clarity on that that word, sons, there. First, I was leading a devotion recently, and I was talking about the sons of God and how we are his sons. And a a little girl in the devotion says, does that go for girls too? Yes, that goes for girls too. We, We just say sons in Scripture just like we say mankind, but we have reference to the sons and the daughters of God. If you're born of the Spirit of God, male or female, you're a, you're a child of God. You're a son or a daughter of God. The writer of Hebrews uses the masculine here, sons, but we know that this applies to both sons and daughters. While we are forgiven in an eternal sense, we pray to God to forgive us as our Father. He does, and He does not chasten us to the degree that He would if we were obstinate and unrepentant. Another passage that sums that up, and it sounds an awful lot like Hebrews 12, 6 is found in the book of Revelation as Christ is writing a letter of displeasure and disapprovement. He's, he's disapproving of the behavior of the Laodicean church. And he tells them, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. As many as I what? I rebuke and chasten? As many as I love. So many people will read the words of Christ to the Laodicean church and they'll say that this had to be a church completely comprised of just outright false professors. I mean, think about it. They, they think all these things about themselves, and what they think is actually the opposite of what really is. But when Jesus addresses them, he tells them, as many as he loves, he rebukes and chastens. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. In other words, Jesus loved the Laodicean church. He loves them. And because he loves them, he will chasten them. The specific chastening that he had in mind was to spew them out of his mouth. That church would lose its candlestick, and it would cease to be. 
Along those lines, as we ask for forgiveness and God doesn't chasten us in the severity with the severity that he could, we also pray for forgiveness and we don't experience the repercussions of our actions to as great of a degree as we could if we remain obstinate and sinful. Now, there are people that I know that, and in fact, all of us, all of us could say this. There are periods in our lives that we sinned and we did things that were wrong that maybe did or should have had lasting negative consequences in our lives. But through grace, God blessed, he delivered, and he might have even turned the situation around so that in the end, through pursuing him and asking for forgiveness, we find a greater blessing through the circumstance or the reaction, the results of the circumstance, than we would have if it never even occurred to begin with. Because God gives beauty for ashes. And so under that heading of chastening, God, even when we ask for forgiveness, can turn the situation around and cause it to be a blessing rather than a curse. And so we say, Lord, forgive us from, for our sins. As he does, he doesn't chasten us, and he turns the situation around. He overrules it. Number two, when we say, Lord, forgive me, and that's something that we pray in every single prayer, is it not? Now, we know that we're forgiven, but every single time we go to the Lord in prayer, at least we ought to, we end that prayer with, forgive us of our sins, in Jesus' name, amen. When we say, Lord, forgive me, God grants unto us the sweet assurance of our salvation. As you Notice last week, we shared with you two examples of people that came to Christ and one person dealing with a spiritual sickness, another person dealing with a physical sickness. The first, the woman who was a woman of the city, she was a sinner, she was a very sinful woman. She comes in unto Jesus as he's eating with a Pharisee and she begins to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with the hairs of her head. Now, as we talked about last week, that woman had grace in the heart. She would not have come into that room weeping over her sins if the Holy Ghost had not given her grace. But what is it that Jesus said to her when she did that? What did he say? Thy sins be forgiven thee. What is that? That is assurance of her salvation. There was another man, the man born of four. That means carried by four. He was a paraplegic. He was paralyzed. They, these three friends full of faith come and they rip the roof off the house that Jesus is in because the crowd was so great people couldn't get to the door. Everybody knew Jesus was there and they're attempting to knock the door down to get to him. These men tear the roof back. They lay the man, lower the man through and they lay him on the ground. Jesus says, thy sins be forgiven thee. And all the Pharisees begin to say, who is this man? Who does he think he is that he forgives? can say that he forgives sin. Jesus responds. He says that you may know that I have power to forgive sins. I say unto you, rise up and walk. And the man immediately rises. He takes up his bed. He, he stands. He probably leaps and dances and jumps and runs because he's healed. What did Jesus first say to that man? Thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, last week we used that in a as an example to prove that Jesus can forgive sin. 
But today we want to use it as an example of assurance of salvation. When we beg God, Lord, I have sinned, forgive me, the response to the soul of the child of God from Jesus himself is thy sins be forgiven thee. And by the way, that phrase, thy sins be forgiven thee, is so many times in Scripture coupled with another statement. What is that statement? Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. God grants us assurance when we ask for forgiveness. And as a child of grace, I think we can all say together, we yearn to hear those words. Don't you yearn to hear the words of Christ to your soul? Thy sins be forgiven thee. Again, this is the one of the prevalent concepts in Scripture. The concept, the forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, along those lines, we know that we have forgiveness. I began today by asking you, if we know that we have forgiveness, why do we ask for it over and over again? We know that we have forgiveness, but nonetheless, we ask for him to forgive us over and over again. And as we ask, he assures us one more time that we belong to him and that our sins are taken away. You might ask the question, why is it important to make distinctions such as this, as we study through concepts such as the forgiveness of sins? I'm going to share with you a couple of reasons why it's so important that you have this understanding. Because historically, looking back through church history, even thousands of years, 2,000 years of church history, this is a concept that is not agreed upon, it's debated, and because of that, we find many of the departures among other orders of faith historically regarding forgiveness. Some people look at passages that we'll consider in just a moment without this distinction, ending every prayer with forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and they interpret forgiveness as being fluid. That is to say, Forgiveness and salvation is never a settled issue until we die. What a yoke of bondage to place upon the neck of God's children as to make forgiveness something that is fluid and unsettled. Could you sleep at night if you didn't know that Christ had taken away your sins? You know your sin nature. I know my sin nature. I know how sinful I am. Had I not the knowledge that the Lord Jesus has taken away my sins and God looks at me as if I was as holy as his son, even though I am not, I don't know that I could sleep. I would be depressed. You might think I just wouldn't leave the house, but in the house there is sin. You know, idle hands are the devil's workshop. You've got sin at home. You've got sin in the workplace. You've got sin in the marketplace. You've got sin in the places of recreation. Why? Because you've got sinners there. Wherever you go, you take sin with you. Say, I'm going to go out into the woods and live as a hermit. Well, there's going to be sin out there too because you're there. And as long as you're there and as long as I'm there, sin is there.
To interpret forgiveness as to make it unsettled or fluid is bondage. This is why the truth of the gospel makes men free. Those who interpret it that way, and you find a couple of different manifestations of this within Christianity in general, believe that one must ask for forgiveness for every single sin to be truly forgiven and escape hell. Because of that, you have such things as last rites. You have people that believe that they must confess at the moment of their death for the sins that they have done from the last time they have confessed until the moment that they die. This is where ideas enter into Christian doctrine that if you commit suicide, you cannot be saved because there's no way to ask forgiveness for it after you've done it. This is where the idea of indulgences come from and acts of penitence to overcome the sinful things you've done. This is where the idea of confessing your sins to a priest in a confession booth come from. But I'm thankful to present to you a message of forgiveness that teaches that once Christ has forgiven you, in God's eternal courtroom, you are forgiven. We must make this distinction or else we fall into this error that forgiveness is fluid and never finally settled until death. And by the way, we don't make that distinction because we're uncomfortable with that notion. We make this distinction because that notion violates the clear teaching of Scripture. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6, 37. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never, what? Perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. John chapter 17, that I might give eternal life to as many as thou hast given me. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee. Or Romans chapter 8. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this concept that forgiveness is always hanging over us in the air is something to be worked out, even for people who are following and loving the Lord Jesus, it's simply not biblical. It violates the clear teaching of salvation by grace from the Scripture. I saw a well-meaning post this week by a, a local man, and it made me cringe. I almost replied to it, but I decided, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. If, if there's anything that, you know, the last 18 months have taught me, it's just keep scrolling, keep scrolling, keep scrolling, or maybe just log out. That's probably a better solution than keep scrolling. Amen. But the point was, he made the statement, we're not really saved by grace. Now, anytime somebody says that, I start backing away. Oh, yes, we are. <laughs> we're not really saved by grace. Grace just offers you the opportunity to get saved, and you determine whether or not you get saved. And I'm just thinking of a mountain of Scripture. By grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to us, teaching us that denying ungodliness... And worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously. Or 2 Timothy chapter 1, 
that we're saved by grace and not by works, and this is given to us before the world began. I mean, you could just go on and on and on. Peter, we believe that by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they, Acts 15. We are saved by grace. And once we are saved, it is a completed process in the eyes of God. It doesn't hang over us with uncertainty. Any idea that makes eternal salvation uncertain to children of God is false. And so we want to be very clear about this and rightly divide this concept. Another mistake that people make with this, and it's, it's similar because it ends up with the same result, but it's different in the way the semantics of it work. Regarding a passage that we'll consider in just a moment, that we must forgive to be forgiven, obviously that creates a problem if you believe that your eternal destiny is dependent on how forgiving you are as a person. Have you ever held a grudge? Have you ever known someone to die with a grudge? What happens if that's eternal forgiveness? Well, then if you die with a grudge, you're not going to heaven. See how serious this is? They'll word it like this, this other error. The language is contorted to say, if you were really saved when you thought you were saved, you would forgive. If you, if it's the if you were really doctrine. <laughs> if you were really, then you wouldn't do this. If you were really, you would do that. Well, I know a lot of children of God that are very, very unforgiving people. Every single church split in the history of the world has involved unforgiveness. Every single one of them. Every marriage that ends, every home that falls apart, every breach in the relationship between parent and children. Now, have you ever known that to happen to Christians? Are we to believe that they were not really saved when they thought they were saved because they were not as forgiving as they ought to have been? No. That's lunacy. It's clear that these passages will consider have an application to saved people. And yet there it is. Forgiveness tied to our asking for it or forgiveness tied to our forgiveness of others. All right, let's begin looking at a few passages before we consider an example of this together today. The best place to turn and the first place that we'll turn together is found in the book of 1 John chapter 1. And this is forgiveness in an experiential, practical, or an experimental sense. First John chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 5. Because these verses we consider do not exist in a vacuum, but they exist in a context. As we read through this passage together, I want you to pay careful attention to words such as we and us. We and us. Why? Because that tells you that this man who writes it, the Apostle John, considers himself a part of the subject matter. So he's not writing to unregenerates in an attempt to get them saved or forgiven. He's writing to beloved children of God, as we read in chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And so we're reading an epistle written to God's children. Chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children. This is not an epistle written to unsaved people. 
This is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Because of that fact, John gives many exhortations to walk in the light. God is light. If you're walking in darkness, you're not walking in God. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, you notice that that word sin is in the singular and not in the plural. John doesn't say, if we say we have no sins, but if we have no sin. He's not talking about individual infractions of God's law. He's talking about a nature. If we say that we have no nature of sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Have you ever met a Christian who thought he no longer had a sin nature? I have. You think that's crazy. Nobody believes that. They do. I haven't sinned since the day I got born again. I've heard numerous times in my life, and I think every time you just did. You just told a lie. Standing right there, looked me in the face and told me a lie. You have to. What's so bad about that error in thinking is that if a person really believes that, he deceives himself. Which tells you that anybody that says that's literally lying to and convincing themselves of their own lie. They're tricking themselves. It's just not right. Notice this verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, along the lines of confession of sin, James tells us to confess our faults one to another, but this is not faults, this is sins. There's a difference in a fault and a sin. A fault is a sin issue you deal with. It's an inclination to something. You say, my faults may be greed, my faults may be anger, my faults may be lust, my faults may be the fear of men, whatever they may be. That's our faults. Sins, on the other hand, are individual infractions. Now, you notice that he goes into the plural here in verse 9. He says, before, if we say we have no sin, that is to say the nature of sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, plural, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, again, John here is writing to people who are blessed of God because God has bestowed his love upon them that they should be called the sons of God. John is writing to little children who walk in the truth. John is writing to saved people And not only does he say, if you confess your sins, but he says, if we confess our sins. As a born-again, aged man who's been a preacher of the gospel for decades, John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And so it's obvious that John has reference to something other than a person being fit to stand before God in heaven Because remember, this same John is the one I quoted in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. This same John records Jesus saying, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. 
The same John taught about the new birth in John 3, 8 and the resurrection of the just in John 5. And yet here he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There's a lot that we could say from that passage. How could God be faithful and just to forgive us our sins when God is a just God who can no wise clear the guilty? Back up to verse 7, our cleansing is found where? In the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son. And so God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because the blood of Christ cleanses us. That tells us that we cannot separate forgiveness down here in a parental sense, in a practical sense, experiential sense, experimental sense, plug in the synonym, from the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing we have is from Christ. But when we confess our sins, He forgives us our sins. That means that we aren't chastened the way that we would be. It means that we don't live with the repercussions of our actions the way that we would. And he assures us of our salvation. Yes, thy sins be forgiven thee when we ask for forgiveness. At the same time, we find this promise that he does something else. Look at the last phrase in verse 9. As we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there's a word that I wanted to emphasize in verse 7 that I skipped over until right now that puts this in its proper context and framework, and that is the word walk. In 1 John 1, 7 through 10, we're not reading about our eternal deliverance of sin, but our walk with Christ here in this world. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from our sins. Back up to the verse before. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. We're learning about the Christian walk. And he will cleanse our walk as we confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness. What does it mean that he cleanses our walk or he cleanses us from all sin? Through confession of sin, we find strength to abstain from and mortify the sins in our life which do so easily beset us. What does that look like in your life? If you struggle with jealousy, I'm just going to pick sins out of the air here, okay? Now, I'm going to be clear to kind of like look off into space when I pick a sin because if I say... A sin, and I look at you, you might think, does he think I do that? No, and and remember, from about halfway back, I really can't make out faces anyway. So, you know, they they say things change at 40, and I've got about a month left. If I struggle with jealousy, I think was the one that I picked, then I confess to God, God, I struggle with jealousy. Please forgive me. And please give me strength to mortify it. And guess what God does? Through the blood of Christ, he cleanses your walk. He gives you strength to mortify jealousy in your own life so that you grow as a child of God. If you struggle with lust, 
Lord, I struggle with lust. I confess that to you. Give me grace to grow. God will give you strength as you confess it to mortify it. Through Christ, we mortify the sin in our own individual lives. Paraphrasing, I believe it was John Owen, if we don't kill the sin, the sin will kill us. If we don't kill, mortify the sin, the sin will kill us. Sin is destructive. The broad road leads to destruction, and we cannot escape its consequences in our lives. And so what we do, we pray for forgiveness, and we pray for cleansing. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. I hope that's very clear. This relates to our Christian walk. It's a practical concept, not a positional or an eternal concept. Now, let's continue to hit a few verses before we consider a very great example, or I should probably say a very, a very tragic example from Scripture. Matthew 6, as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a lengthy sermon, the longest that's recorded in the book of Matthew. It's Jesus' first that's recorded in the book of Matthew. He says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. This is how you should pray. This is a model prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, I'm going to resist all temptation to expound on every one of these. And, and there are sermons we've preached and sermon series we've preached on this passage in the past. So reflect back on those. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let that sink in a moment. Continuing, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Of all the things that Jesus said in that prayer, there's one thing he comes back to. Look at verse 14. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses... Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That means when someone does something to us that is legitimately wrong, the degree to which God forgives us in our daily life is directly related to the degree that we forgive others who wrong us. And we don't like to think of it as the fact that we, we wrong God. We trespass against him every day. So we think, well, Lord, but they really did something to me. <laughs> Well, no, you really did something to offend God every single day. And in a practical sense, again, defining it as his parental involvement with us, delivering us from the repercussions of our actions, and giving us the assurance of salvation, thy sins be forgiven thee. God's forgiveness of us is directly tied to how we forgive others. This is the true meaning of passes such as judge not that you be not judged. Now, that's every atheist's favorite verse. They don't even believe Scripture, but they love that one. In the book of Luke chapter 6, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Plains, which is a similar message to this one but in a different location, says in verse 36, Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not that ye shall not be judged, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not... And ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. And so, again, you have forgiveness being tied to the way that we forgive others. 
Christians ought to be the softest-hearted people who walk the face of the earth. I'm just going to tell you, being unforgiving is poison in your soul. It outright kills your joy in Christ. It ruins relationships. There are so many times that people hold grudges against others that the others have no idea about. And all it's doing is hurting you. I've shared this with you. It's a cliche, I know, but holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You've just got to let it go through Christ. And as we forgive those that sin against us, God is more inclined to go easy on us in our own day-to-day lives than he would have otherwise. God despises hypocrisy. And so many of those concepts have to do with hypocrisy. We expect to be forgiven, but we don't like to forgive others. And so God is gentler or more harsh on us depending on the way that we forgive others. He gives a parable about that in the book of Matthew 18 that I'll leave you to read later for the sake of time. But it's about servants that are debtors and people who have the ability to forgive and what God does to us if we are unforgiving. You can find that in the book of Matthew chapter 18, the last paragraph, begin in verse 23 and read through verse 35. As we come to the final passage that we want to consider today, I want to turn to the book of Psalm Book of Psalms, Psalm number 51. Psalm 51. Now, I say that this is a great example that demonstrates a principle that I've been sharing with you today. But in fact, it's actually a tragic example. It's a great example of a terrible circumstance. Psalm 51 is the passage of Scripture that David wrote after... He had sinned with Bathsheba after he had sent Uriah the Hittite, her husband, away to die. And Nathan the prophet had come unto him and told him that he had sinned. To summarize and paraphrase that account because it would take too long to go into, David is on his roof. He sees a woman bathing. He lusts after her. His troops and his commander are out at war. It was a time when kings would go out to war, and yet David is not out at war. David is in his bed. He arises from his bed, and he sees this woman bathing. He lusts after her, but instead of mortifying the sin right then and there, he calls her into his chamber, he sins with her, and she conceives a child. As word of that comes to David's ears. Some weeks later, David brings Uriah, her husband, a godly man, the Hittite, back to Jerusalem so that he can go into his wife and David can cover up the sin. What a shameful, deplorable thing for David to do. And it just gets worse from here. It doesn't work, so David gets him drunk. The man sleeps outside David's chambers. And his reasoning is, shall I go and be with my wife and eat and drink and be merry when all of my brethren in the, the military are out fighting in, in war? 
David then says the only way to cover this up and hide it is to have the man killed and take his wife as my own. That's how drunk he is with sin. There's a reason that righteous living is compared to being sober in Scripture because sin is intoxicating. And David is in an absolute drunken stupor with sin. David sends the man to the front lines, sends him with his own death note, hands it to Joab, his commander. David sends Uriah to the front line of the battle where the arrows and the spears fall at the side of the wall, and this man Uriah is killed. David takes Bathsheba as his wife, and he moves on as if nothing had ever happened. And then God sends a preacher. Nathan the prophet goes to David, and he tells him this parable of a poor man with only one ewe lamb. And a rich man passes through and takes that lamb and slays it and takes it for himself. David is irate. The man that's done this will pay fourfold. Who did it? I will have him murdered. I'll have him killed. I'll execute him. Nathan looks David square in the eye and he says, David, thou art the man. And from that moment, David's house of cards begins to crumble all around him. He sees what he has done. He came to himself, as it were, as we read in the language of the prodigal son. I believe there's a joyful moment in heaven when God's children come to themselves because that awakening, that opening of their eyes to what they have done is usually what sparks repentance in them. They see that what they have done is wrong. God afflicts David's house. David laments for a period in sackcloth and in ashes. The child that was conceived in that union was not suffered to live. God takes that child to glory. But the next child in that union of David and Bathsheba was Solomon, who would be king, and David would not allow that, or God would not allow for the child that was born of that union to reign as king over Israel. Of all that David did wrong, he also gave the enemies of God reason to blaspheme God's holy name because sin never exists in a vacuum. And there's always something greater than ourselves at play. This is God's man in the world, the king over God's nation. And he has committed such a great sin. God's enemies blaspheme when they hear about this. As David realizes all of these things that he has done, all the sin, he is now sober, as it were. He writes this psalm. You see in this text here, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet had, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. As we shared with you what forgiveness means in a practical, experimental, experiential sense, we talked about praying for forgiveness, to be spared from chastening and the repercussions of our actions. And we talked about assurance and restoration to fellowship. When God gives you assurance, you have fellowship with him. We notice that in the book of 1 John. We find those three aspects of forgiveness, chastening, and assurance here in Psalm 51. First of all, forgiveness, 
David prays in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. He doesn't outright use the word forgive right there, but he's asking for forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions through your tender mercy. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David confesses his sin and asks for forgiveness. Against thee, the only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Now, this next statement is quoted by Paul in the book of Romans with relation to justification by faith. Justification by faith being the doctrine of biblical assurance. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. What does that statement mean? Lord, I sinned. Everything that's happened to me ever since then is just. You are justified when you speak and clear when you judge. I deserve this, is what David is saying. I'm confessing my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's asking for forgiveness. Verse 9, hide thy face from mine iniquities and blot out all mine. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. He's asking for forgiveness. But we also find elements of God's chastening of David. David dealt with mental anguish. He dealt with outright depression because of this. And he lost a child that was the product of that union. Make me to hear joy and gladness, listen, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Now, David didn't suffer any literal broken bones. That's poetic language for saying, God, you have dealt with me for this. I feel the penalty, I feel your chastening. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Lord, take away from me your chastening. Verse 11, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Lord, please don't chasten me the way that you could. And then lastly, as we think about assurance and the restoration to fellowship, as we ask for forgiveness and God speaks to us, thy sins be forgiven, assurance of salvation What did he say in the first phrase in verse 8 of Psalm 51? Make me to hear joy and gladness. Give me assurance, Lord, of my salvation. Verses 10 and 11, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Assurance of salvation. Verses 14 and 17, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Blood guiltiness not only has reference to David being guilty of taking someone's life, but also guiltiness in conscience. When you struggle with a guilty conscience, isn't it one of the worst things that you can experience? The mental anguish when you're suffering guilt inside, when you know you've done something wrong and it torments you? You confess it to God, you give it to Christ, you find forgiveness for that, 
You find cleansing and healing from that. You find assurance and you find fellowship with God. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. We close with that verse to say, you know, David says, God doesn't want any more sacrifices from me. I can go offer a bullock, I can offer a bird, I can offer a lamb. It's not going to do any good. What God expects out of you and me in those moments when we have sinned is a broken and a contrite heart, and that he will not despise. I would encourage us to, when we sin, to confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We'll be spared the chastening rod. God can correct and repair the circumstances around us beyond what they would have been. And even more blessed than that, as we confess our sins, He grants unto us the sweet assurance of salvation. Like that woman that came and wept, and washed his feet with the tears of her eyes and dried them with the hair of her head. May we come to him with a broken and a contrite heart. And you know what he's going to say to you? Thy sins be forgiven thee. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these thoughts that we find in your word of forgiveness of sins. Lord, we know that you've taken away our sins and they're as far away from us as the east is from the west. We know that we have complete, perfect, eternal forgiveness in Christ. But knowing that as a theological fact and knowing that as a matter of experience are two different things. And so, Lord, we confess our sins to you. We pray that you forgive us of our sins. And we pray, Father, that we leave here today uttering those words that you would say to us, to our heart, with the sweet voice of our Savior, thy sins be forgiven thee. We yearn to hear those words. We desire to hear those words. We don't want to just hear them once. We want to hear them every day. Help us, Father, to forgive those that sin against us, that we can enjoy, that we can enjoy the sweet deliverance of our sins that we have in Christ in our minds as it relates to our experience each and every day in our walk with Christ. Cleanse our walk, Lord. Cleanse us of all the sins that we do that disappoint you each and every day. We pray for strength. And we pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.